Certain uh, songs that we sing um, bring out different emotions. And sitting on the front row, it doesn't do me much good to say this because if you were or if you weren't, I couldn't tell anyway because I can't see out of the back of my head. So I can't see what everybody's doing behind me. But I'm curious, how many of you were just dying to raise your hands at that last song right there? I see some smiles and some nods. My wife was just restraining those hands from going up. Are you ready? It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. If you're an old fuddy-duddy like me, maybe less prone to do that. But it doesn't mean my heart's not bursting inside when we see the, sing those beautiful words. Uh, so if you want to let go a little bit, and nobody's, we're not going to be the spiritual police to make you go around, so it's okay. If you would, take your copy of God's Word, turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 are our verses for consideration this morning. John 15, verses 12 through 17. While you're finding your way there, just a little thought, a little chuckle. You know, when JT comes up to uh, uh, lead us in uh, scripture reading, I am curious. You don't have to raise your hand or nod or anything, but as spouses sitting next to each other, are you doing the Bible drill race to see who gets to the scripture reference first? Some of you, a little bit. Uh, I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and Sandra was way there, way quicker than me. And uh, this may be lost on you, but it was just a thought that I had. Um, I attended the very first uh, T4G together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. I think it was about 2006. By the way, this year is going to be the last one. But uh, I, I was there, and it was about 3,000 men packed into this little ballroom at a hotel in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. And Man, you want to talk about, you got to think back to 2006. You didn't have internet streaming to just, you had it in a second you could get anybody or any hero in the faith uh, communication or stuff, unless they had a radio ministry. So to sit in a room where you got to hear R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and John Piper and Mark Dever and others like that, I mean, that was the first of ever getting a chance to do that. But speaking of the scripture, scripture reference thing, which I had noticed before, but I didn't know if anybody else, when John Piper gets up and gets ready to preach, and before he even announces where his text is, he says, hey, is it lost on anybody that John MacArthur is the only one in this room that has a Bible with tabs in it to help him get through the Bible, which he does. He uses a Bible with tabs in it, which seems a little odd for somebody that knows God's word that well. So a little jab for John MacArthur. So if you're racing with Bible drill, echoes of Bible drill coming back, so keep score, and I guess somebody has to do an extra chore around the house of who gets to the scripture first. I don't know, but uh, anyway, it just threw me back to 2006 and seeing something so incredible and God used in such an incredible way that's going to end up this year, the final T4G conference this year. So anyway, that's landed with some. For a lot of you, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's not this morning's message. I invite you to stand in honor of reading God's word. John chapter 15. Verses 12 through 17, I invite you to follow along silently as I read aloud the word of the living God, Jesus speaking in that upper room to those 11 disciples and by implication to every believer. Therefore, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, 
for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, and it just seems that in that upper room, Father, that you've had us in now for several Lord's Days, it's just, what an incredible moment. I guess I, for myself, during the week, studying, and for all of us that are receiving this information, maybe for the first time this morning, that, you know, that separation of over 2,000 years of what those 11 men were privileged to see and hear and taste and smell. Father, penetrate our hearts with that same thought. We may not have been in that upper room, but we are in the family of God. And you've chosen us. And moment by moment through that evening in that upper room, We have the incredible privilege of knowing what's going to happen within the next 24 hours. Those men didn't. Help us to to have the joy, to have the intimate relationship of that which just doesn't come and go, but lasts forever, and being called a chosen friend. And so, Father, take our hearts and our minds. Let us push out the, the trappings of Christmas time and all the hurrying and all the planning and all the things that just cloud our minds. And let us see with clarity what your Son is proclaiming to us. And that we grasp it, that we understand it, that we're obedient to it, that we prove it each and every day of our lives. And so come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Give us ears to hear. Give us Minds to understand, give us hearts at this moment to be moved and give us lives to be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Now you're going to have to watch me or you may miss it. You pull out a little uh, uh, strip of paper and on top of your desk you take a number two pencil And you write these words. Will you be my friend? Question mark. Check yes or no. And you draw a little box. And you wide it up as tight as you can so Mrs. Jones doesn't see you pass that note to him or her across the aisle in the classroom from you. And you slide it over into their desk. Will you be my friend? Check yes or no. Now, that's an old school reference. The younger ones in the room saying, I can't exactly equate with that. We just text each other continually every moment of every day all the time. But back in the Stone Age, if you were going to communicate that and pose that question to somebody you wanted to be your friend, that's kind of the way you did it during the elementary ages. And what you were trying to communicate by slipping that note to him or to her was just acceptance. I mean, you were looking for some connection to other people in a room for all the 30 Something boys and girls, and in recess, you know, 90 to 100 of you running around trying not to 
knock each other's heads off. So you're looking for acceptance, companionship. Uh, be honest with you, at the heart of it, just someone to be nice to me on the playground during recess, okay? Just be, would you be my friend? But the reality is at a young age, friends kind of came and go. If not day by day, at least I mean, maybe even hour by hour, you're not my friend anymore. So that idea of acceptance, the idea of having some type of companionship, the idea of someone to be nice to me at a young age, it just it comes and goes. And you that have children in this room, you know full well that sometimes Janie is your daughter's best friend, and sometimes she comes home from school, and just we're not friends anymore. Changes day to day and bounces back and forth. It doesn't uh, change too much until you get to high school age, and when you graduate high school. You'll learn in the next three to four years, you kind of splinter out. There's a scattering that kind of happens. So maybe somebody that kind of through the years, as you went through the elementary age, you went through the middle school years, you went to high school, you got a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And so you had fewer friends and maybe a couple of close ones. But once you graduate from high school and some go to the workplace, some go off to college, maybe not the same college, or maybe some pursue a career in the military, you just, you know, before you know it, kind of scatter on out. And nothing much changes when you become an adult. Uh, when you become an adult, and particularly when you have children and you're starting to have a family and you're married, um, it's a little more consistent. Uh, but work, um, interest, relocation causes what I would call a drift. This past uh, Friday night, Sandra and I were over in Startville, and I was standing there. She had gone to the ladies' room, and I'm standing there, and I saw a guy pass by me, and I thought to myself, man, that looked a lot like Dale. And I'm kind of just waiting for Sandra. In a few moments, lady walked by, and I said, no, it looked like Tammy. And before you knew it, long story short, we ran into a couple that were extremely close with us. Uh, we had kids at about the same age. We watched their kids. They watched our kids. Every birthday party, every, you just name it. Our families were interwoven. Uh, just great companionship. But we hadn't seen them in, what, over 15 years, almost 20 years for we we not even had a conversation with them. And so we sat there for a good 15, 20 minutes, the best that we can, doing a little bit of catching up. Will you be my friend? Check yes or no. What about let's ramp it up just a little bit? What about our individual relationship to God? Have we always been, are we always God's friend? Well, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, Paul writes, For if while we were enemies of God, enemies, I mean, can't we just kind of be in a neutral zone right there? I mean, just maybe I just hadn't really met you yet. I haven't been introduced to the gospel yet, and we're not that close. And while I may or may not have grown up in a Christian home, it's just, you know, I'm not enemies of somebody I've never met before. I've not done anything to you, and you've not done anything to me. It seems awful harsh to describe all of humanity prior to salvation in Jesus Christ as enemies of God. That seems harsh. How are we enemies of God? Well, James helps us out in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, James writes. James doesn't pull any punches. That's one of the more harsh cut, I mean, black and white. James just hits you right in the face with it. So says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So that's a good little bit further explanation because that's what it basically comes down to. It's cut and dry. There's only two categories. Prior to salvation, you are, in fact, because of your willful rebellion against God, every single evil thought, every single evil word, every single evil deed in God's mind and his holiness and righteousness makes you and I not just indifferent to God or God indifferent to us. It makes us enemies of God. Now, a little caution here, lest you think being, being an enemy of God is reserved for the worst of folks, certainly not me. You know, you might put, try to put yourself in a category that, you know, you know, I know some people that quite frankly can't get along with anybody. I mean, they're just, they're contentious people. They just have a mean spirit about them. And to be honest with you, I'd be surprised if they have any friends whatsoever. They just got that bent towards them. You can't get along with anybody, but not me. I mean, I can get along with most folks, give me enough time. But unless you think being an enemy of God is reserved for the worst of folks, you might want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9 through the beginning of verse 11. Or do you not know, Paul writes, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in the beginning of verse 11, he just punches you right in the stomach. And he's, while you're sitting back thinking, well, I'm never in that extreme in my sin. Paul begins verse 11 and says, and such were some of you. Every single solitary one of us, by implication, in the category of understanding, even though he uses a, a exists that it just exemplifies sinfulness, because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single solitary one of us, folks, is not in an indifferent stage or in a neutral stage towards God. We are, in fact, enemies of God. That's how he views us, and quite frankly, in all honesty, in the way that we view him. Here's my point. One of the most beautiful aspects of being a Christian is not just the glorious fact that by God's grace we are justified, found not guilty of all these sins, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, but that our entire relationship has changed from an enemy to a friend. We are, in fact, chosen friends. And that brings us to our context in John chapter 15. We don't lose the setting uh, because in that moment, in that time, comfort is still the thought of the day. Those 11 men are sitting there. They're still rocked by what they've seen and what they've been told. And Jesus at this point is layering on the fact about the, his relationship to them and their relationship to him and by implication for you and I as well. So we're still in the upper room. It's still comfort to his disciples. The relationship described in metaphorical language last Lord's Day morning at the beginning of chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 and that metaphor of the vine and the branches, it kind of hits at home, particularly in verse 9 of chapter 15 when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And now, based on what is about to happen, and I, I want to emphasize that, your task in understanding God's word isn't to take something that is old, over 2,000 years old, and make it relevant or bring it into the present day. That's the opposite of your approach. 
whether it's just personally taking in God's word or whether you're teaching God's word. So the idea isn't to take something, okay, that is old and bring it to the new. Your case is to take you and I and take us back to the original. That's the only way you're going to get to the truth. And so at that moment, in that room, what you and I know in completion, these 11 don't know the way that he's going to love them. You and I have full revelation. They do not. So now based on what is about to happen, you will no longer be my enemies. You will be, in fact, my chosen friends. Because do you understand what Jesus is trying to communicate, not just to the 11, but past this, he's, he's implanting within their heart a central foundational truth of not only being found not guilty of your sins, therefore, no longer fearing any condemnation for your sins, but even more so, your relationship to me has changed. You're not just in a neutral site of those who have been forgiven, wonderful as that is, but I'm bringing you into me. I'm going to abide in you. You're going to abide in me. As the Father abides in me, we're going to abide in you. The intimate relationship is now out of metaphorical language, and he's getting down to brass tacks. I'm going to move you from one polar extreme to the other, from an enemy to a friend. And that's what we are, as considered in Christ alone. We are considered friends then of God. We're no longer enemies. And so in the verses that we're looking at in verses 12 through 17, I want to lay out three ways that you and I will prove that we are friends of Christ. Okay. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to present it in this way. You will prove to be my friends if, and we're going to show this and demonstrate. So what Jesus is saying, not only is it factual that I'm going to secure it through my death, burial, and resurrection, you personally are going to demonstrate that that fact is true. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to secure it. You didn't even plan it. But you are going to prove it. And so the believers that are in this room, everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone is no longer an enemy, but a friend. Now, from that point forward, this is the way that we prove it. Number one, verses 12 through 14. You will prove to be my friends if you emulate my love. If you emulate my love. This isn't just a transference that is just singular in the individual that helps you. It works its way out of us. Look at verses 12 through 14. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. It can be one thing to be moved in a station of life. It's a whole other matter to understand that our course of life is meant to not secure it, but to prove that existence, to demonstrate it before the world, to let our light shine so that the world sees our good works and glorifies our Father in heaven. And one of the most foundational elements, and I would say this, absence of emulating this love, nothing else matters. When Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He said, you will love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Absence of love emulated in this distinctive way. Now, Jesus has already spoken in the upper room of this commandment in a uniqueness. He said in John chapter 13 and verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. 
Now, it's not new in the sense of understanding about love. That's since the Old Testament. In fact, he's already spoken about that. They've been in the company when he was being tested by the Pharisees. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers rightly, you shall love the Lord your God. They already heard that. So it's not new in that sense, but it is new in its distinction. And guys, this is the most helpful thing as a Christian of understanding in the way that we love that is unique and distinctly Christian that's different than any way anyone else loves in this world. In other words, it's an affectional love, it is a winsome love, but it is a distinctive love. So in John chapter 13, verse 34, when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, <clears throat> excuse me, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so now in John chapter 15, he explains or expands on that thought a little bit more. In less than 24 hours, Jesus would demonstrate this love. Now, you and I that are sitting here, we are on the back end of that. We see total fulfillment of this love. And what may come into your mind is, all right, wait a minute. Just as Christ has loved, in what way? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his Friends, well, none of us in this room can lay down our life in the unique way that Jesus did by willingly letting himself be betrayed, arrested, scourged, beaten, placed up on a cross and carry our sins upon the cross and receive all of the wrath due for every sin on the face of earth upon his shoulders. None of us has that strength. None of us have that power. None of us are unique in that way. But the way and the heart and the sentiment behind the love, we absolutely do. We absolutely do. Guys, listen to me. We are preferential people. We love what we love, and we don't love what we don't like. At the heart of Christ's sacrificial love upon the cross was loving sinners such as you and I. In that same way, that needs to roll over. That's the distinctiveness if more so, at least in my lifetime, than any other lifetime. It, instead of being tribe, tribal system of packing together in certain little groups and everybody just eating everybody up on social media in that way, guys, we are called to love in a way to love the worst of people because, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of us. Remembering what we were before we were saved is very beneficial in understanding the degree of love it took to save a sinner such as you and I. And we are to love in that same way. It's a distinctive love. It's a unique love. In fact, I want to develop that just a little bit more because at the heart that's threaded through this, you'll notice the bracket. Verses 12 and verse 13 say basically the same thing. It's an inclusio. Everything is bracketed behind. Loving in this way. In other words, an absence of loving this way in mining your life gives a demonstration continuing in our life that that which we proclaim to transform our life from an enemy to, enemy to a friend is not really true. It's just words without life transformation. So hold your finger there. John expands on this, but not in the Gospel of John, but in his second epistle. Turn to 2 John uh, real quick. 2 John, not first, not third, 2 John. All of these thoughts are woven together perfectly in 2 John. What is this distinctive love and how should we constantly remind ourselves and in fact live it out? 2 John verses 3 through 9. Look there. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and what? And love. 
Then he explains it. Verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, <clears throat> excuse me, walking in the truth, John says. In other words, being obedient. A life of obedience emulating this type of love. Just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had according, excuse me, from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to this commandment. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. So you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in this wicked works. It's just continual in this emulating this type of love. John also includes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And I want to just take a minute right there and understand something. Unity, forgiveness, patience, forbearance. Guys, listen to me. It has to start in here before it's ever going to have an effect out there. All right? Now, we're still, in a sense, trapped in these bodies cursed by sin. You ready? I'm going to offend you. I'm going to disappoint you. And you're going to do likewise to me. What stands in the balance is the understanding of what we have been commanded. Based on the fact of what I profess that Christ has done for me, and that demonstration of that unique love, I am to be emulating to that. I don't have an option or an out. I don't have a recourse just to turn my head and walk away. If I am, I'm in disobedience. And at that point, I am demonstrating if a continual act of that type of disobedience, then in fact, perhaps I'm not a friend of God's. So if you will prove to be my friends, you will, if you emulate my love. Secondly, back in John chapter 15, you will prove to be my friends if you desire divine truth. If you desire divine truth. Look back at John 15, verse 15, you are my friends if you do what I command you, this commandment to love in this unique way. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants. The phrase there should be rendered it better in ESV. It should be slave. For the slave servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you my friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known do you, the second identifying fact in one who is truly a friend of God through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you will have a desire for divine truth. Notice he gives a prior identity, then an identifying trait, then a new identity and an identifying trait. The prior identity, I no longer do I call you servants. That slave thrall. The identifying trait is for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. A servant just in and of himself, quite frankly, doesn't need to know what the master. He is not given the incredible privilege of knowing the heart, the mind, the disposition of the master, his purposes and plans. You're basically this. I told you to go do such. Now be obedient to that. Jesus is trying to expand this relationship. It's not just that I'm giving you commands written on a page, but my father is inviting you in to understand his purposes and plans. Servants alone don't have that purview. 
servants alone don't. But you're my friend. And you're friends of my father in heaven. And my father is going to divulge his purposes and plans to you and you alone uniquely. No need for the slave to know or understand. Just do. But the new identity, but I've called you friends. What's the identifying trait? For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. This is huge. In your understanding of that movement of your placement from enemy to friend. It's not just a station that gets you out of the bad stuff and gets you into the good stuff, but you're still kind of forced into just kind of this limited understanding and knowledge, the incredible wealth of understanding that before you are two things in order for them in that room. An act in my death, I'm going to disclose the apex of my father's revelation, that only those who put their faith and trust in me will ever be ushered out of their state of being an enemy into a friend. That is a declaration of my father's purposes and plans. But on past that is the full revelation that you and I have of my entire word. Everything, all that my father has declared, I'm going to make known to you. Question for you. Do you approach God's word in that way? Do you just hold it in your hands and the understanding that God is speaking to me? He's under no obligation to speak to me, but he's chosen to speak to me. And the truths that are contained in there, are you ready? Are from beginning to end all that you will ever need to know about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the character and nature, the purposes and plans of the God, the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Do you look at it with that weight? Do you look at it with that glory? And oh, by the way, dovetailing back in on the back end of this, what he's already told him, I'm going to send you the helper who's going to divinely give you and lead you into all truth. He's going to explain everything that you don't understand. For the 11 sitting in that room right now, they have no idea what the next 24 hours are going to hold. It's going to blow them away. It's going to rock their world. So much so that Jesus said, you are to wait for me on this mountain. What do they do? They go back to what they've known. They go back to earthly existence. They go back to fishing. How'd you like to be in that boat at that moment and suddenly realize that's a risen Lord and Savior standing on the banks and I'm out here doing exactly the opposite of what he told me to do? So you're going to rush in to have breakfast with the one that you know that you so-called loved, that you thought you understood, and that you were going to sit in and cozy up and have a... And that must have been the most awkward breakfast that has ever, ever been held. You and I are sitting here with full revelation of all that the Father is ever going to communicate from beginning to end. There is nothing more. That's huge. In the act in my death and in word, the scripture's description of my love for you. Do you crave that divine truth? Do you dig in it, wrestle with it? Do you praise God that he has given you the helper from within as that identifying mark that those things that you cannot understand, he's going to guide you into all truth. In other words, back to the slave master. A slave needs limited information. You don't need to ask me why. Just go do what I've told you to do. But as my friend, I'm not only going to give you the commands which glorify my Father in heaven and identifies you as my friend, but I'm going to explain every nth of it to you. To the praise of our Father in heaven who rescued you and I from a station of being his enemy to his friend. Guys, we need to seize that, drink that in, glory God in it, ask 
dig. It's just like an insatiable appetite. That's the bread of life. And I'm only here for all of eternity. So you'll prove to be my friends if you emulate my love. You'll prove to be my friends if you desire divine truth. And then in verse 16, you'll prove to be my friends if you're chosen by me. If you're chosen by me. Look at verse 16. So no longer do I call you servants. A servant doesn't need to know, but you're my friends. And so I'm going to disclose to you all that the Father has given me, I'm going to give to you. Verse 16. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, for a Reformed church, we're licking our chops because we feel like this is the proof text that speaks of the uh, doctrine of election. All right, you ready? In the context in which it's in, it has hints of that. It reinforces that. More explicitly, you're going to find that in Ephesians chapter 1 and some other places. But you're not losing the sovereignty of the moment. And this is what we need to be careful of at this point. We win others' friendship by doing things that make them friendly to us. In other words, we show up at a new workplace. We want to get along with everybody, but we also want to have friends in the workplace. And so we ingratiate ourselves towards them. And we win their friendship. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand this. In the sovereignty of God, we don't select him as friend. He and he alone selects us as his friend. We have nothing to do with it. We cannot earn his friendship. In fact, the truthful understanding is we've done everything to make ourselves enemies. But that initiator of friendship, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, what he's hitting at is for the 11 that would understand something fundamental to every Jewish young man. And I've heard this reversed around. And where guys are getting this to try to break down the doctrine of election, I couldn't tell you. But here's the understanding from reputable scholars and theologians. For a young man in that day and time, when he was growing up and in the formative years of understanding Torah, God's word, the Old Testament, and understanding liturgy and prayers and his understanding of God and all, all the history of Israel, he would perhaps select the rabbi which he wanted to sit under. It would be somewhat akin to you and I deciding what college to go to. We have in our mind that we want to accentuate something, we want to major in something, and so we pick the school that's best suited for that, and even more narrow to the particular persons who are on staff that would best equip us for a greater end, something for our lives. So we pick and choose. You don't have to go to Mississippi State. You can go to Ole Miss. Well, some of you are wilting at this moment when I say that, but you do have a choice in that matter. Cole's about to die back there, brother. I mean, I'm not saying everybody's going to do that, but some do. Or they would have understood that. What he's trying to help them understand is the significance of that movement from enemy to friendship. Guys, listen to me. People struggle so with the doctrine of election because I'll give you one reason. Because it hits at the major part of the sin in our lives. It's me. It's, everything is about me. And I want me. I would say this. Once you succumb to reform theology and the doctrine of election, it is the ultimate submission you are letting go at that point to let God be exactly who God explains himself to be throughout Scripture and his purposes and plans for his glory alone in our joy. At this moment, what he is, in this context, there's a different choosing that's going on. Still sovereignty over choosing. Still in control of all things and in all lives. But there's something more unique. Not only an understanding for us to understand so that we would be 
caught up in wonder and praise and adoration for God continuing that he and he alone raised someone from the dead like us who were dead in our trespasses and sins so that we would be called his friend. He alone secures it. He alone laid down his life willingly. We didn't do anything to ingratiate ourselves towards God. It was God's purposes and plans. It is in his prerogative, not in our prerogative. But there's an added element in context here that that's why it isn't necessarily a proof text for the doctrine of election. I initiate our friendship, but notice there's something he's doing in it, and this is something that I want us to remember, particularly for our church and where we are right now and where God would have any church to be, much less Grace Covenant Church. Look back at verse 16 again. Lest we get too narrow in our focus of election, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I have a task specific And now he's going to weave in what was the fruit metaphor from verses 1 through 11. Now he's going to bring it into reality. That which we spoke about before is what we talked about, the fruit of the Spirit coming out of us. This is going to be an appointment to make fruit abide. Which begs the question, how do you make fruit abide if it's just internal? If that glory that's being revealed to us, moving from an enemy to a friend, affects us individually, and it does. I can't affect other people. I can't affect my wonderful bride in that. There's something he's appointed us to do that is an identifier of one who proves to be his friend. Look back at the verse again. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give to you. Looks back to the verses where he said, look, you've seen wonderful things that I've done, but you will do greater things than I have. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, you can have all the fruit within yourself, but if you don't have a heart of understanding that what God has done for me through his son Jesus Christ, I am compelled and commanded to go and tell others likewise. Because we are the front lines of evangelizing this area. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't spent much time in Mabin uh, prior to this for almost two years. It's kind of back and forth over that way. I, I didn't really come up and through unless I was going to the Chandler's house or somebody like that. And I had to come up 15. You need to take a close look around this neighborhood. It don't look like my street. It don't look like Spring Valley. It's a little different. Question needs to be asked that in a one mile radius of this church, are we willing to go out and tell other people about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and bear fruit that abides, that stays, and that remains? Jesus said it back when he said, I am the good shepherd. I have sheep that are not of this fold. He and he alone knows that. He and he alone knows the ones that he's chosen. You and I, our obligation to bear this fruit, to demonstrate that we're friends of God, is to go and tell others likewise. How can we take something that has transformed our life here and for all of eternity and not be willing to share it? Neighborhood around here doesn't look exactly on top of things. A little here and there. And I'm not trying to just downplay everything. 
Well, we got to be careful as we leapfrog over everybody else to go pick, cherry pick the ones that would be a nice addition to Grace Covenant Church. I guess I could put it this way. Are you satisfied with the folk that are around you right now? Or if the greatest display of God's glory is taking the worst of sinners and moving them from being an enemy to a friend. Guys, we are commanded to go. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Before the foundation of the world, he said his sovereign choice and election on those that he's chosen so to do. There in a single solitary human being on the face of this earth for all of existence who can ever name those persons. That's outside of our purview to lend ourselves so heavy on that end. And God's going to do what God's going to do is to make ourselves lazy and disobedient. There are people around here desperately needing to know the joy that we have in this room. And that uneasy desire to lift up your hands in songs that make you want to go like this. They need to know why we feel that way. From an enemy to a chosen friend. What glory, what joy. What a command to go and do likewise. And love in such a way that we sacrifice to emulate the sacrifice of the one who gave his life for us. May we be obedient in the weeks and the months and the years to come that this room be filled in that way for the glory of God and a demonstration of his transforming spirit and mind in your life. Would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> well, I suppose we've said it a lot until you know the bad news, the good news doesn't seem so good Take it for granted. I guess for all of us in this room, one time or another, we think we've done something that made us appealing to you. Based on your perfect righteousness, your holiness, we're giving us an honest picture of ourselves through your word, the ultimate truth that we're not. We're dead, lifeless, Which begs the question, what can a a dead man or woman do for him or herself? The answer is absolutely nothing apart from you. By your love, by your mercy, by your divine choice, Father, it is to your honor and your glory. But if we are to prove ourselves, not earn it, nobody in this room can earn it, but to show it and to demonstrate it to a lost and dying world that you would use people like us in a declaration of the truth and a life that demonstrates total obedience to your command to go and do likewise. Father, may you be honored and glorified. May men and women, boys and girls come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.